Welcome back to The Film Experience. I'm your host, Nathaniel. This is another edition of the Supporting Actress Smackdown. Uh, we look at Oscar, Oscar vintages from years past. This time we're going all the way back to 1938, which was only the third year of the category. Uh, so the, the nominees were Faye Bainter in the Antebellum Self-Drama Jezebel, Spring Byington in the Best Picture winner, the comedy You Can't Take It With You, Bayula Bandi in the family religious drama of Human Hearts, Billy Burke in the screwball comedy Merrily We Live, and Melita Corjus in the musical that's sort of a Strauss uh, biopic, <laughs> um, The Great Waltz. Um, I can't wait to get started. So many fun things to discuss. I'm so excited to introduce the panel to you. Um, first up, we have Brittany Young from Netflix series Glow. Hi, Brittany. Hey, everybody. And what's your history like with the Oscars? I, I, this is the first time we've ever talked. I don't know. Do you, have you always loved movies? Have you watched the Oscars? I am a huge movie nerd, and I have watched the Oscars since a very young age. For some reason, the English patient year was, mm. like, the year I really got into it. Um, but I went to film school at USC and just love love classic movies so I was really excited to see that you were offering 1938 because I hadn't seen any of these movies so I was really excited to jump in and um figure out where in the heck I could find all these classic films online I did it but it was a trick (laughs) yeah sometimes it's more of a challenge than others um anyway thanks for coming on and next we have another actor Stephen Weber hi everyone I'm Stephen Weber and you're a big movie buff too right I am, uh, for years. I mean, as the elder of this group, I can say that I started watching the Oscars when I was a little kid, you know, and I mean like in the 60s. And uh, more than occasionally they would show the, um, and that's where uh, movies were starting to mature in many ways. I remember being around 10 or 11 and remembering films like Midnight Cowboy and, uh, you know, Carnal Knowledge and things that, you know, very adult movies. And they would show uh, clips from them. And that's when I began to uh, realize that films were more than just the kind of the kid kitty fair that I suppose I was I was watching. But, I, yeah, I'd always, always loved the Oscars and was watching movies, you know, on TV. Late at night, I began to stay up and, and catch old classic films like Britney. I mean, I've, I'm, I've become a real film nerd. I always have been. Mm-hmm. I so glad to have you. And then we have Vanity Fair's Joanna Robinson. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I also grew up watching the Oscars every year. Um, my sister and I, instead of, you know, I grew up in like the 80s and 90s, and instead of watching the things that most people were watching, we definitely watched American Movie Classics back when, like, they had the rights to everything, and then TCM when they got the rights to everything. Um, and so I love... Um, I'm so, I, I, same. I was so excited that I got to do a 1930s uh, year. I was really excited by that. Um, and yeah, I, I co-host a podcast called Little Gold Nine, which is an awards season podcast, but I definitely know much more about the modern awards races than I do the early years. So I'm excited to learn some things. Great. And then finally, we have Claudio Elvis. Hello, everyone. Hello. Uh, Hi. I write about film for the film experience and also for a Portuguese publication called Magazine HD. And I've loved the Oscars forever, but mainly since 2006, when Marie Antoinette made me uh, obsessed with the awards race. 
That's an unusual one to get obsessed with, but I also love that movie, <laughs> Sofia Coppola. Um, all right, so we're going to jump back into the 30s, um, and the first thing that I want to note is that this was super early in the Oscar history. It's the 11th year of the Oscars, but it was only the third year when they had the supporting categories. So they hadn't even worked out their, you know, tropes yet exactly. And, uh, but here we see some of them forming because we have so many types of moms. <laughs> and so I was wondering if that, uh, at 80% of the category is like matriarchal figures, even if they aren't the moms. Um, anything else that you noticed that you thought I've seen this before in Oscar history? It's funny when I think of the supporting actress category for so many years, it was like the wife, the long suffering wife is the genius. So like mm-hmm. in the, in the great waltz, the Strauss musical, I think if that film were to come out now, Louise Rayner would like play some category fraud and hop over into the supporting, you know, category. Um, so but I was happy to see something a little bit more interesting in that particular film, um, which in terms of the performance that was nominated. Yeah. And for, me, for me, one of the things that jumped out right away uh, in, it, I think, at least three of the five films that we watched was how hard it was to watch for kind of obvious reasons, because um, having to do with, you know, the marginalization of, of, of black people and people of color and and alike, you know, as speaking as a, you know, uh, middle aged white dude, you know, it's like, ah, it's like having a. Um, the scales ripped from my eyes or, or a layer lip ripped from my eyes. And, and it was like really, uh, discomforting to, to watch. Not only, not only historically how, uh, black people and people of color are, are treated in, in historic stories, but also Hollywood's use of that. Hollywood's kind of feeding into that. So that was the thing that kind of hit me, you know, like somebody turning on a light right away. You know, and then of course that brought me into the my uh, trying to to um, understand the role of the of the supporting actress actor in this, you know, uh, female actor in it, and that that was interesting to watch too. You know how she is placed not only in the historical roles because all these are most of the movies that we saw are are kind of stories out of history, but also how Hollywood treated those characters too. So it was. Fairly interesting and and kind of new and (laughs) marginally terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. I think like for me, especially with Jezebel, I tried to go in with like what Stephen was saying, try to go in completely empty minded and was just hit with so many current events. I was like, I don't really want to watch a pandemic movie during a pandemic from 1938, you know, but I think kind of going back to the tropes of the Oscars for me, which was interesting was how much screen time these ladies got to even be considered a supporting actress and not just maybe it's a TV term, but like a guest starring role. Like I felt with at least three of these women, I didn't get enough of them. I wanted more of them on screen, but then I think of like um, Anthony Hopkins, when he won for silence of the lamb, he was really only on screen for like 10 minutes. Yeah. And one best actor, you know, and for some of these roles, I guess it qualifies enough to be considered a supporting character instead of really just a little kind of cameo piece in and out. So I thought that was really interesting to just see how much time these women were given to work with and come out with an award nominated performance. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, people's perceptions of that, I think, have been become really skewed because nowadays, like, lead actors are always competing in supporting categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But earlier in, in Oscar history, that didn't happen so much. Um, so here we got, like, actually supporting roles. Um, and I was actually a little surprised how much screen time some of these women had, but it's like one thing about older films is that the camera a lot of times will show you several characters at once, which is very not like modern cinema where they're close up to close up to close up. Um, so like Jezebel, for instance, you said, since we should start there, since there's a lot to discuss, um, Faith Ainter is actually in a lot of it, but she's sort of in the background, um, of the scenes. And, um, and I think Brittany, in, when you, uh, gave your little blurb about her, you mentioned how emotive her face was and how a lot of actors overlook that. And I, I wondered what you meant. Did you mean more in like reactive since she is not the center of the scene? Um, I think just, Totally. I mean, I think you're right in that she is in a lot of scenes where she's in the background, but I think there was a lot of times, I, I'm trying to remember the, the scene specifically. I think it's the moment when, uh, Betty Davis's character actually leaves to go with Henry Fonda to the leper island. And it's just a shot of Faye Danter up on the banister and she's just standing there. And you can just tell by the look on her face how upset and disappointed and scared she is. And I thought that she had a lot of moments throughout the entire film where she didn't really say much, but it's just a shot of her face. And she's never smiling. She's never happy in this movie, it feels like. She's always so upset and scared for Betty Davis's character. And I think that sometimes as actors, I don't know, I have a very expressive face. So a lot of times directors will tell me to be like, hey, Britt, just a little smaller, please, you know, but it's nothing to take offense to. But I think a lot of times people think emotion comes from words and they forget about their bodies. And I don't think they, Vanter forgot that. I think she really was like, how can I get this point across without needing to say anything? Um, so I think that was the strongest, for me, the strongest part of her performance was how emotive she was without saying anything. Yeah. My favorite example of that, I completely agree with you. My favorite example of that is the scene where, um, you know, Henry Fonda's character has shown up with his new wife and she has to like welcome her in while internally freaking out and worrying how Betty Davis is going to react and how sideways is all of this going to go. And she's sort of playing all of those things just on her face, but has to give this like in-universe performance of the gracious hostess and all of that. And I just loved, I love the layers of that moment for her. That was really good. Yeah. And, uh, um, Steven, you mentioned that, uh, that you felt like she was being conducted like an instrument. Well, I feel like, uh, I love, in many, love that description. well, in many of these films, I feel like all of them, or in, in, in a lot of these films, they were almost musical and conducted by the directors in a sense. Everybody played their instrument well. You know, nobody improvised. There wasn't a lot of particular spontaneity in the performances as that I don't think was the style back then. I don't think the space for that kind of spontaneity existed in films, but the strength, you know, like Brittany said, the strength of Faye Bainter's kind of more introspection, more introspective performance in contrast to Betty Davis's extreme. I mean, she's such an extremely powerful presence in every film that she ever made, you know, and, you know, parenthetically, even though we're talking about supporting players to have a star, mm-hmm. uh, a star carry this film the way she does 
is, you know, a, a subject unto itself, I think, especially during those times. But, um, um, I, yeah, I feel like the, the, the director conducted each performance in this symphony, you know, in this, it's, it's a very kind of musical structure. These, these, all these films are like symphonies to me. That's a really interesting way to look at it. I mean, what, one of the things that I, um, I know Claudio, you, you wrote that, um, Faye had the face made for playing tragedy on screen, which I absolutely love and agree with. Um, but I, the, for me, the most fascinating thing about her performance is I felt like it was almost like a mirror of what we're doing as the audience only because she's always, always focused on Betty Davis. And that's how that movie plays. Like it's such a star, like supernova performance. Like it's when she ascended to become a superstar essentially. And, and only it's the difference of sort of the like magnetism of like an anti-hero in, in how we watch films and television versus what it would be actually be like to deal with an anti-hero in real life. Like she's right. like constantly upset. I just thought that was really uh, telling. And I thought she really understood that about playing off of like a star performance. While well, watching. Do you want to say anything? While watching the film, I often felt like Faye was the audience's guide to how to take Betty Davis, because she's a very unsympathetic character, Julie. And mm-hmm. I often felt like it was difficult to care for her, to be emotionally invested in her fate. But through Bainter's Aunt Bell, I actually was able to engage with the story. Uh, for example, the, the ball scene with the red dress, more affecting even than Davis's mortification when she's made to dance, it's Bainter's crestfallen face. How she seems to deflate. She's afraid for what's going to happen to Julie. Mm-hmm. And I think because of her, we really get the, the social norms and social violations that are happening in the film, which are a bit difficult to swallow as a modern audience because mm-hmm. all of that, because of a red gown, it's yeah. difficult to buy. But Bainter makes it feel real. Yeah. Well, I think one of the social norms things that stood out for me, and I think it's just because we're in the summer of Hamilton right now, <laughs> another summer of Hamilton, and is that all the stuff about, like, the men's code and the honor and, the, like, the, you know, if you offend someone, you have to have a shootout. Yeah, the duels. <laughs> and, like, just kept thinking of Hamilton during that. Um, Ten paces. Yeah. Yeah. And also, of course, it was uh, one thing that, about Jezebel, which I think we can segue into other movies, is there's really uncomfortable dialogue. I mean, Stephen, you mentioned like the, the racial stuff in Jezebel, but there's un- really uncomfortable arguments about slave labor and the North and machines. I mean, obviously, the film is from a Southern perspective because old Hollywood was very obsessed with the antebellum self, of course. Um but all of these movies are really about economics, which surprised me. Like even something like The Great Waltz, which seems like it's about music, is all about his sort of skyrocketing, skyrocketing to become like a very handsomely paid like 
rock star of a composer. (laughs) There's politics of the revolution in that um, movie as well. Yeah, they all feel political in their own way. And um, and that's interesting. Um, And I do think for Jezebel specifically, like the race stuff is so glaringly awful and uncomfortable. And but then when you see a character make an equivalency between the norms that Betty Davis is violating versus the other, you know, codes of conduct they have in the South where they're like, well, this is just our way. And, and like, why would you come, you know, this is our, these are our traditions, culture of heritage, et cetera. And like how her struggle is caught up in that struggle. It's all the same, like oppressive system in the South. That's like not the same, same, but like, that's, you know, making her an outcast or wearing a red dress and like oppressing an entire, um, you know, race. And so it's just like, you know, I don't, I don't want to like make a false equivalency there, but I think it's an interesting parallel of that narrative. Even if, even if the film itself doesn't know it's making it, I'm not sure it does. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can't imagine the film knew what it was doing. Right. You know? Right. I mean, it was just, you know, fish, fish don't know they're wet. You know what I mean? When they're swimming, <laughs> it's like, you know, they made some concessions like Betty Davis was, you know, arguably more sympathetic because she was nicer to her slaves, you know. Uh, and, and then, of course, her suitor, who's a the really interesting actor whose name is escaping me right now, was the ostensible villain of the piece, you know, the guy that was, like, uh, courting her, you know. Oh, that, friends, I think. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, right. Andrell, yeah. yeah, that's right, that's right. He was, you know, he was clearly the villain, although, again, in this whole atmosphere – there were these accepted tropes and conventions about, uh, you know, uh, slavery and status, you know, that everybody, no matter, no matter what, could really only probably find happiness if they were wealthy or, uh, or, you know, certain, you know, financial status. I think for me, what I thought was very interesting was <laughs> kind of what Stephen was saying. We have slaves, but we're nice to them. You know, that's one thing that kind of stood out to me, especially with, um, oh, I cannot remember his last part of his name. I want to say they kept on calling him uncle, the man who kept on opening his oh, doors. Kato. Like, oh, uncle Kato. Yeah. Where I was just like, no, he's not, he's not your family. Like, don't, right. it was really frustrating to hear, or especially the man when, um, he crossed over the fever line and he's trying to have dinner because he just escaped like this crazy situation and she right. comes up and is like, Hey, you know, tell me everything, but you you can't eat. You're taking me now. Like yeah. that was such a frustrating scene to see where it's like, you're asking something of this man and you're not even going to give him, right. you know, two seconds to eat food after he just ran for his life. Like, I think for me, it was one of those movies again, like you were saying, Daniel, where it is so um, shown from the Southern way where it's like, we don't have slaves. We're giving these people jobs, you know, like that's how I kind of equated it. And it was really frustrating to see, but again, it's like, would we, would we be thinking these ways and be as uncomfortable as we are with these situations if we weren't watching it in 2020 and especially 2020 this summer, you know? Right. This film was a year before gone with the wind, by the way, gone with the wind was 1939. Mm -hmm. And that's another film that certainly, is ha, has exploded my brain open, you know, because that was held as the paragon of filmmaking, you know, the the sweeping theme and the unbelievably beautiful photography, and of course the iconic lines and characters. Now, virtually kind of unwatchable without understand without this new understanding about what 
what Hollywood was really going for, clearly what uh, the, the book itself or the story itself was really espousing. I, I, impossible. impossible. I think there's a whole book. Yeah, I think there's a whole book to be written. I'm, maybe somebody's written this book and, <laughs> about the connections between Jezebel and Gone with the Wind because Jezebel was considered like Betty Davis's, uh, like a gift to her because she didn't get Scarlett O'Hara. Something, something I read and I don't know how apocryphal it is is that that scene that we were talking about in terms at the dinner table when they're talking about, uh, northern, uh, industry and production versus southern labor. Mm-hmm. I think it was cut out of the original release because they were like sued by the folks making Gone with the Wind saying this is too close. You know our film and that it's coming out and this scene is too close. I think they got tried to get more removed, but they're like, that scene is too close to something that we have coming out that you know is in our movie because it's based on a best-selling book. <laughs> um, so, like, I think Jezebel was seen as also, like, a race to get out in front of Gone with the Wind. Gone with yeah. the Wind was in production for so long. So they're like, let's just make Jezebel, which is really similar to this yeah. movie, and get it out first. And, uh, you know, and so I think if you see Jezebel before Gone with Wind, you're like, oh, this is interesting because, like, Betty Davis is playing a character we don't often get to see, like, women playing. And then Scarlett O'Hara comes out and you're like, oh, I, I see what happened here. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and two best actress wins in a row there. Right. Uh, for something anti-heroines. Yeah, something I I thought was interesting in a lot of the movies, these movies you're watching, is you say there's, like, a political class thing going on, but there's also with that this, like, fantasy of the kindly liberal rich people right you know what i mean like um in merrily we live which has the most insane first line of a summary i've ever read which is like what like mrs so-and-so just can't stop hiring tramps in her house and you're like what is this premise um and so i uh you know and so like that idea of like uh patronage Right, gracious uh, gift of white rich people to the less fortunate um, seems like a thread throughout a lot of these movies. Yeah, I mean, it's even a thread and you can't take it with you, even though the family is not rich, per se. Hmm. That that there's they're still, like, gifting this freedom from money to, like, right. the they come in contact with. So, And, you know, we were, that Hollywood was coming out of the Depression at this point. Um, so it's just really interesting that that's so foregrounded in these movies that people's relationships to money, although it's still fantasy, like as you're saying, merrily we live. Like, what are their lives, you know? <laughs> and I love that that movie began begins with like it almost looks like a television sitcom, like yeah. with this like song and them all walking to the camera. Yeah, and yeah. very proscenium, like very flat. Yeah. I gotta say, amazing clothes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Christ, I mean, Jesus Christ. The, what was her name? Not Joan Bennett. Was it Joan Bennett? No, um, Constance Bennett. I've not really seen Constance Bennett that much, but holy smokes, her wardrobe was off the charts. <laughs> Crazy. She, she came across to me as like a B version of Carol Lombard, and I feel bad saying that because yeah. I know yeah. she has like not wrong. Know, she has like a cult fan base, Constance Bennett. Yeah. But I just kept wishing it, it was my man Godfrey while I was right. Watching. Yeah. It wasn't as witty or sharp as my man Godfrey. Merrily We Live really pissed me off. Yeah. I, I was so disappointed because it was a, you know, it was supposed to be a uh, kind of a knockabout screwball comedy that didn't, for me, had zero laughs in it. I mean, I, I wanted to just smash, smash everything. 
I think that um, I think that we are the the panel's very split on that movie because I think Claudio and oh, really, I think Claudio and Brittany, you both really I loved Billy, Billy Burke myself, and I think you both did as well, right? I yeah, she was my only five out of five heart. I think for me, it like I said, it's just so rare to see an actor play a dim-witted character so smartly. I think for me, she didn't, like, her character easily could have become very annoying and very cliched, but I think that she was actually the driving force of the whole movie. I think she allowed a lot of insight into how this household works the way it does, and, you know, especially for me, too, it's like, she's Glinda. She's Glinda the Good Witch, and she will always always be Glinda the Good Witch, and for me to come in and just have that be completely erased in her performance, I thought was really good. But Stephen, I do agree with you. I think, I don't know. I don't know that I would say it was a screwball comedy in the traditional sense that it was a screwball. I think it was one of those moments where you have one funny character who brings in all the laughs, Mm -hmm. and then you have all these other characters who just take themselves way too seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that balance was definitely off, but she was, she was my favorite performance for sure. Yeah. Man, I, I, I've taken a lot of tramps into my house to try to make them <laughs> better people. And let me tell you, it's a lot funnier. I have, we have a much better time. <laughs> That's a laugh, right? Yeah. Um, Claudio, I, in your write up of, um, of Billy, um, I love what you wrote about her inhabiting the space. Um, of, of as I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, about why that impressed you. Well, actually, that was something that impressed me about more than one of the performances. I, for example, loved how Faye Bainter at the end of Jezebel kind of deflates in exhaustion mm-hmm. when Betty finally goes to the to the colony, and in Merrily We Live, the way Faye the the, the way Billy Burke enters the space right on her first scene. This caught my attention much more than the lines, which weren't very funny, sort of my man got free light. But she enters the dining room. She doesn't even acknowledge any of her family. She looks first at the bird, then at the fish. And only when someone (laughs) talks directly to her, does she actually turn to her family. And all of these things, she like walks through the space without considering anyone in it. And every time someone talks to her, it's like she's jolted out of a trance of some kind. She's so overenthusiastic about everything that every time someone takes her out of her intense philanthropy, uh, it's like she's surprised like a kid who's just been shocked by something. I think that my, my thing that put the performance over the top for me was her rehearsal for her own dinner where you just, it's a scene where she's completely alone and she's just looking around the table and like making these facial expressions, like rehearsing her reactions to conversations she hasn't even heard yet, which was so funny to me because she doesn't really engage in conversations in a normal way. So to rehearse it just made it very funny to me. I agree with Claudio. She, like I wrote in mine too, most of the time when I laughed at her, it was the use of her body. You know, she has these giant doe eyes where she just gets something and then it kind of goes away and then she's like, oh, again, or just 
the same scene, Claudio, in the beginning when she finds out Ambrose ran away with the silver and he probably hates her, which she doesn't care at all that he's stolen the silver. It's more what he personally did to her when she just gets up and kind of runs really quickly and is dramatically crying in her long gown through a solarium. Like, it was so over the top and would have made me originally be like, what is this woman doing? But I was more like, oh, my God, is she okay? Like, I don't know. It was something about maybe how fragile she played the part with her body instead of her words um, that really attracted me. But I agree. She really did, I think, use all of her tools at her fingertips, quite literally, in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think the movie is a little, like, I'm not saying it's a great movie for those of you who didn't like it, but I think it's definitely a little labored in its comedy, especially in the back half, where it tries to get very slapsticky. Like, Mm -hmm. the stuff with the door, I was like, this is killing me. Um, And not in a good way. (laughs) But but it is interesting that back then, the Oscars were not very anti-comedy in the early years. Yeah. In the 30s especially, they really liked comedies. So, I mean, you can't take it with you one best picture. Yeah, I was going to say, I think my appreciation for Billy Burke Pale, uh, like, suffered because I watched that right after I watched You Can't Take It With You, which was a rewatch for me, but is a movie that I really, really love. And I think that Spring Byington's performance in that is kind of similar in that she's also playing, like, sort of the daffy mom figure. But she has that real moment of connection at the end when she, like, breaks down because she's kept things peppy and upbeat. And then the, the like, the real prospect of losing their home causes her to break down and have this, like, crying moment with her father that I was like, uh, that's what I was needing in Billy Burke's performance is just, like, a little moment of connection and humanity to sort of offset the, like, bubbly, like, effervescent moving through life sort of thing. I also think another thing that bothered me in Merrily We Live is, like, it's one thing to have a Daffy character. Those are, like, a staple of screwball comedy. Mm -hmm. I hated how everyone treated her like a child, especially Constant Bennett, was just like, okay, dear. And I'm like, oh, this is all bothering me so much. Uh, Whereas in You Can't Take It With You, like, you have all these eccentrics, but it feels like a family where they all respect each other's eccentricities and, like, love and support and are rooting for each other. And even if mom only writes books in place because a typewriter showed up by accident, everyone's, like, really supportive of her work. And I just likes that so much more yeah I, you can't think it with you is is interesting because usually in comedies you have to have like a a straight man for all the for for the the, the more uh, flamboyant comic relief characters and you know i know uh, for you actors you both worked in comedy forms and uh, like i think that's the typical thing you have to navigate right like playing off performances that are dramatic in some ways, but then you have to have the, like, so the more exaggerated comedy in them as well. And the interesting thing to me about You Can't Take It With You is, like, there isn't really a straight man. Like, you, it might be Jimmy Stewart, except for he's really weird. Even in his first scenes, like, when he's, like, screaming and, you know, posing his girlfriend or whatever. It's just a very eccentric movie. So I was wondering if, Stephen, if you could talk, or Stephen or Brittany, if you could talk to that about working in comedy and how hard that is to navigate those things. Oh, boy. Um, uh, okay. I you, I just, uh, <laughs> uh, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, all, all I can, well, what, rather than address that straight on and show you how ignorant I am about what it is I'm supposed to be doing for a living, 
I would rather I'd rather talk about you know about how, the difference between say Merrily We Live and you can't take it with you vis-a-vis the the directors like Merrily We Live was Norman McLeod right who worked with the Marx Brothers and did that kind of screwball comedy um, and and one one aspect of Merrily We Live is that I don't think those actors were necessarily built for that type of comedy they were all very capable obviously you know and 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 Billy Burke for all her you know her her characteristics, which we which I only knew really from Wizard of Oz. You know her high trilly voice and everything. Um, she plays that perfectly. And but the thing about you can't take it with you is that because it was Capra, Frank Capra, a lot of those actors formed his company in a way, his company of actors we used over and over. And Capra's approach to comedy, it seems to me, was way more grounded. Like Spring Byington was the matriarch of that, uh, but her performance was way more grounded, I would say, than Billy Burke's was, you know, and she was she was the, you know, the, the eccentric rather than the kind of crazy and bubbly and flighty like Billy Burke, you know. So, I mean, she, they played similar uh, dynamics in their stories, but did it differently, I think, by virtue of how they were directed and also what the material was. I mean, look, to play comedy, as far as I'm concerned, I'm like a I'm a pawn in the in the in the big chess board that is any given show that I'm in. If they want me to be broad and like Brittany, like I'm given to like ah, I'm I'm pretty big. I'm not saying you are, but but I'm I'm big. I've always I've always been too big, and so I've spent like 30 years trying to get small, 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 you know, and which is murder. Uh, but so I'll I'll go however big or small any director wants me to go, or the material dictates. Uh, but more often than not, it seems to me that the more grounded people are, you know, invariably the better it is, unless you're going ape shit. Can I say ape shit? Yeah, unless you're going totally berserk, you know, like a Marx Brothers farce or something like that. Right. For me, what I loved so much about Spring Boynton's performance was how natural it felt, how very much it felt. Like, I think I said in my piece, I'd love for her to be my potential mother-in-law. Like, I could see someone <laughs> walking into this house and just feeling right at home. I mean, literally, I've never seen a woman use a cat as a paperweight and act like it's completely normal. Like, yeah. did that so, as a cat. That's what's the yes, about so it. expertly, whereas I think with Billy Burke, she, I think with Billy Burke, she was meant to be the comedic point of that movie. And they put all their comedic eggs in her basket and only wanted her to be the one that got the last, the one that did all the physical stuff. Whereas I think what Stephen was saying with Frank Capra, he said everyone just go and play the beats you want to play. Be exactly how you want to be and find the humor in being these people instead of making them humorous, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think just I would much rather want to live in the house with, you know, the Barrymores and the Boyntons than, you know, in Billy Burke's house. But Totally random, though. Did we ever pick any movies that would make you completely hate James Stewart? I wanted to smack him in both movies because he was like, <laughs> <laughs> I like him and you can't take it with you with, other than, like, the absolute sin of bringing his parents over on the wrong night. But, like, of human hearts, I was... When he tried to just be like, oh, I'm going to marry you, they've not even been on a date yet. Like, oh, he came on a lot strong in that one for me. <laughs> I get the, I, it, 
of Human Hearts is like a really weird Jimmy Stewart performance. It's a crazy movie. I was yeah. like, uh, did everyone did did you guys like look it up before you watched it? Because I didn't, and I'm watching. It, I'm like, what is this movie? What is the point? And then there's like, oh, extended Abraham Lincoln sequence, and I was like, oh, oh I didn't. My God. <laughs> I love that you mentioned that, Joanna, because I was so, I had never seen this. uh, This is the one I had never seen. And I I was like, what? Yeah. (laughs) And and Abraham Lincoln, like, busting his ass. Like, hey, listen, you. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Write your mother. Write your mother. Write your mother. What are you doing? Yeah. While he was there, he should have probably written some letters to Jezebel. As well, <laughs> right? If right. he's going to, of course, correct people in their in their lives. Yeah. Well, but we, if, let, let's talk about Beulah Bondi in *Of Human Hearts*. Now, and, to, and also her. Look, I I always loved her. I think she's a great actor, and I've known her primarily from again *It's a Wonderful Life*, mm-hmm. and where she shows amazing range. Uh, in many ways, I think of all the actors that we're talking about, we haven't spoken about um, the. Uh, the also insane, uh, the great waltz, but, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but for me, like Bula Bondi, talk about somebody who's grounded, but also theatrical at the same time. I, I felt like she, and, and I've seen this in, especially in it's a wonderful life where she plays the absolute loving, concerned mother, that whole stereotype. And then in the same movie, in the fantasy, in the dark fantasy sequence, she plays the coldest, mm-hmm. most distant, cruelest, scary Ma Bailey, who's running the boarding house. And uh, that always blew me away, the the uh, precision of that particular moment where he's saying, like, Ma, Ma don't you know me? You know, it's, it's mother, mother. And she goes, <laughs> she looks at him and she goes, mother. Like it's like it, she needs. It's disgusting. I was like, whoa, this this person is incredible. And similarly, in in the you know in the what's his name uh, uh, of Human Hearts, she's grounded, but she's playing mother, and she's devoted, and she's you know she's playing what's written. But I think did it very beautifully. I mean, again, you're not allowed to go that. Far. You're not allowed to color out of the lines in movies back then. So I thought she was great. Yeah, I, I I had more of like Joanna. I share more of your reaction where you said you just couldn't connect. <gasps> no, I like yeah. I I think it's just because that movie. It, I blame the movie, not her, because she's obviously a great performer. But like, like I just don't I don't I don't understand why her son is such an asshole. And so then I'm like, and then she just takes it, uh, which obviously like plenty of women have taken abuse from their children in their lives. But I was just like, I wanted some backbone in her. And so I think it's just the character type was really frustrating for me to watch the just like endlessly suffering martyred sort of uh, mother figure. But, you know, Stephen's right that I've seen her do incredible stuff in other films. It's just this character like nails on the chalkboard for me. So. <laughs> yeah. She, she, I haven't seen The Gorgeous Hussy, but that's the movie she was nominated for like shortly before this. And so I'm wondering if, if that, have any of you seen that? If her No. Um, maybe that on you porn (laughs) (laughs) maybe she was playing like such a different type that they were like the range my goodness um i don't know if she's the titular hussy or not but um you know Uh, yeah i I just don't think it asks 
that much of her in this movie. But yeah. maybe that's just me. Brittany, I feel like... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you were going to... I was saying you were going to say something. Oh, I think... I don't know. I agree with you, Joanna. I think when I first started watching the movie, I almost was bored, where I was like, I don't really know what's happening. I don't really care to connect with a terrible father and his kind of dick of a son. Like, I just don't want to watch this relationship. And I think for me, what saved it was Bonnie's performance. I think she was the person who I related to the most and actually cheered for the most. Just, you know, even like you said, she didn't have a backbone, but I was waiting for her and I wanted her to get that backbone. Um, I think though, for me, what I said, even in my breakdown, her performance actually to me kind of dictated the entire movie, especially after her husband died, because I think every decision that Jimmy Stewart made after that made me think of this poor woman in her house writing to the president to ask where her son's grave was. Like every decision he made, I think was made more powerful because of how she performed her role. Like, I mean, when she sold Pilgrim, what could have been like, what was a maybe 12 second scene literally made me, start to tear up because I was like, this is the one piece of family that this woman has left and she's going to sell it for this dork of a son, you know, who does not treat her right. I think for me, we're like to just, or to compare her performance with Faye Banter's performance where I felt both of them just kind of were a part of the environment. were just a part of the atmosphere. Like they didn't necessarily stand out, but for me, I kind of forgot about Faye Banter Whereas Bula Bondi, I rooted for her. I wanted more of her. So I think for those two characters just kind of being really similar, um, I thought that Bondi did just a phenomenal job. She wasn't enough to give me give her five hearts, but I gave her a good score. <laughs> now, Claudio, you've been I don't know what you think of this movie at all. What did, what did you think of, of human hearts? Well, like you can take it with you, I think of human hearts is insufferably sanctimonious <laughs> and quite schmaltzy. Um, though I really love Bill Labondi. I think she should have been nominated the year before for Make Way for Tomorrow. And I did enjoy some of her choices. I think that, like others have said, that she was very limited by what her role offered her. Mm-hmm. But I liked how she sometimes underplays the scene when I thought, especially judging from the film around her, that she could have just went for the emotion. I'm thinking mostly of the scene surrounding her husband's death, where she only cries, she only shows the grief of it when she's alone, when nobody is looking at her. When she is at his bedside with Jimmy Stewart, when he finally arrives, she's stone-faced. It's like she... Her entire performance is about showing hints of of grief, of disappointment when nobody's looking. Mm. But when she's when she has to support her son and her husband, she's almost inexpressive, like in that scene. I was expecting her to cry, to to guide the audience towards a very teary moment, but no, she she does nothing. She allows Stuart to dominate the scene, but and her face, her stone face at the center, and to me it was one of the few moments when I actually engaged with the film because it surprised me in some way because the rest of it 
I just couldn't care for it, especially yeah. the Abraham Lincoln write your mother moment. <laughs> it's insane. Well, nothing. There was one thing crazier than Abraham Lincoln's write your mother <laughs> sermon, and that was the Great Waltz. <laughs> From beginning to. <laughs> Wait, so you had seen this one before, Nathaniel? Oh, actually, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I had not seen The Great Wall. So that was, and so Joanna, wow. I was thinking of you while we were watching because, you know, you and I both love musicals. Yeah. Talked about this, and I didn't, I had no reference points for this movie, and I was surprised how much of a musical it actually was. I thought it was going to be more like a biopic, but it was a crazy musical. It's a jukebox musical with yeah. Strauss waltzes. That's what it is. Yeah. And lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein. Like, this is so weird. It's so weird. And, like, uh, you know, they have that card at the beginning where they're like, you know, uh, we, we took inspiration from his yeah. art and not his life. Uh, and so I was like, okay, how much of a departure is this? And I was like, oh, no basis in any reality of his life at all. Um, he had, like, four different marriages or whatever. Uh, it was a bonkers movie. Um, but I love Melita Korjus. I don't know how to pronounce her name. I actually kind of love, I found her mesmerizing. Yeah. Like, clearly she's not an actress. She's a singer. Like, that's what she is. But there was just something about, like, her weird wolfy grin, her, Ooh. like, sparkly eyes. They kept, like, cutting back and forth. I couldn't stop watching her. So, like, this movie, um, a trash fire, I think, of a, of a movie. But I loved her in it. So, yeah. I, I kept thinking of Moulin Rouge while watching it. I was like, did Boz Lerman inject this into his veins as a baby? Because I, it was so... It feels like part of it. It was so crazy. And, like, the editing, everything felt, like, non-1938 to me. Like, it was... It, it felt very wild, the camera movements and the editing. I was just like, what is happening? Uh, the photography was great. The photography reminded... I don't know if it was Greg Toland who did it, but, I mean, there was a lot of that kind of low angle looking up at the... The ceiling, which was very rare that you actually see a ceiling on a, in a, in a scene, you know. Yeah. It, it looked really great, but yeah, absolutely psychotic, you know. I mean, the yeah, the, the cinematography won the Oscar for that. Yeah, actually, a really interesting thing about this year that I only just realized right before we all got on this call was that almost all of the movies that we watched were nominated for Best Cinematography that year. Mm. It was like the supporting actress in the cinematography categories kind of lined up, with the exception of, of Human Hearts. Um, but all the other ones were up for it, and The Great Waltz won, which I think is a fair call as cinematography goes from these movies. Um, but I, in terms of the cinematography, I kind of felt like how Glenn Close has sort of made reference to the fact that maybe the cinematographer of The Natural, who always lit her with that golden glow in that baseball drama, <laughs> maybe deserved her nomination, you know, sort of. Uh, and I kind of felt that watching Melissa because it's all like she's lit so spectacularly the whole movie. And it's like all about like her being like the seductive, <laughs> you know, presence. Well, to me, she and I, I, I wrote about this, that I, she reminded me of the... Um, she was very reminiscent of those silent screen vamps. Yeah. Uh, like Theta Barra, you know, Paula Negri, who, you know, always lured men into these moral traps and seduced them. And, and actually without having to, you know, uh, uh, resort to crazy, like, ooh, I'm hypnotizing you with my, you know, my harem dance. She just sort of stood there and like, yeah, wolfish. She, she, uh, was very still. Very economical, which was again that that has those are standing out, especially in this era when people dare to be still. 
mm-hmm. play it down. That that kind of grabs my attention. Um, and she was interesting. I would have liked to have seen her maybe do other things, but uh, I thought she was kind of strong, even though she was the the relative amateur in that otherwise bizarro goddamn movie. And, and <laughs> Lu- Lu- Louise Reiner, who you know was arguably well, I mean, she was very famous, and she did The Good Earth. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, doing what was what is called yellow face, you know, uh, uh, which was uh, she was an interesting actor, too. You know, and, and in many ways, women, I think, were given with, with the possible exception of Betty Davis, you know, that they were given uh, um, uh, guidelines and you and adhered to those strict guidelines and were were encouraged or discouraged. Uh, um, depending on who the director was, you know, and and uh, and so Louise Reiner, for instance, did everything she was supposed to do in that kind of interesting European way, you know, very kind of kabuki-ish. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, otherwise, what was her name? Melissa. Melissa. Very interesting. I thought. Yeah. I I yeah, Brittany, you're shaking your head. <laughs> I, oh, I feel like my score on this does not really reflect how I feel about it. Because I agree with you. I think Melissa always had my attention. Anytime she walked into a scene, she had my attention and she held it. But for me, I, I have this issue with um, musicals. I love them, but I think a lot of times... Singers, great singers, are cast in these roles, and they sing phenomenally. They bring the house down, and then all of a sudden, they're nominated for acting awards. And they most of the time win these acting awards, but it's like, if you take the soundtrack versus their actual acting pieces, they don't match. Like, I think Melissa, for me, phenomenal singer. I would love to listen to her sing all day. It was the moments for me where she was believable. But everything else, I thought she was almost a little too stiff and trying a little too hard what Stephen was saying to be that femme fatale, to kind of be the seductress in that I didn't believe that this man fell in love with her. And then that she fell in love with him so much, she would let him go back to his wife. Like, it just, I don't know, I just... I didn't believe her. And again, too, Joanna, I wanted to tell her to stop smiling. I was like, girl, like... Just bring it in. Why are you smiling every scene? And there was moments too. I thought my um, I thought my internet connection was bad. In the- <laughs> meet Joan or Shoni at the uh, Count's house because she's literally. Everyone listening to the podcast, you can't see. It. She's literally smiling this big, but her mouth, her teeth are moving this much, and yet she's projecting <laughs> so loud. How, why are you yelling at me, but you're a clown smiling? I couldn't, I don't know. I just, I really feel like someone saw her on stage in an opera and was like, this woman is commanding the stage and she's projecting and she's doing all these things so the person in the back seats can see her. But as someone on the screen, I just was like, this is, like, she was acting. Like, you don't want to see an actor act. And I think she was acting and then when she came in with singing she was phenomenal so I, I think I gave her a three because I was like you did command my attention I'm so passionate about this movie guys um, <laughs> <laughs> did command my attention ooh attention but I just I didn't see a well acted performance I saw an opera singer doing what she does best 
Oh, and I also thought, too, how we're connecting her to everybody else. Is she not the model for Lena Lamont in Singing in the Rain for the Dueling Cavalier movie? Ooh. <laughs> Did anybody yeah. else see it? Because I could not unsee it after I, like, made the connection. The look B flat. <laughs> like, I couldn't unsee it. And then after that, I was like, all right, I'm just And then you were it. done. <laughs> <laughs> Although the performance was not. Oh, sorry, what? He's just doing his. He's just doing his Lena Lamont. Sorry, I, I, I was walking around this whole week going. He flat. Um, I, uh, I, I will say, I will stick up for one thing in this movie, and that's the like Tales from the Vienna Woods sequence. I do really like that, even though this movie is crazy. But that one, that whole, that idea of like putting it together with like from the shepherd's horns and stuff like that, I was like, that's cute and then they tried to do it again with the blue danube and i was like no you did it already you can't do it again but um i, I thought that was, one part was really good i i actually really loved the musical sequences in general in this movie i thought they had so much energy and like fun um but i know that uh, that claudio i know you really really didn't like the music. <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to sound mean but i thought she was terrible <laughs> <laughs> like my attention was fully on her whenever she was on screen, but for all the wrong reasons. She's so stiff, so wooden, and with that smirk that her face never modulates any emotion except that knowing smirk. And every time she's trying to be flirtatious, she just sounded like a novice drag queen trying to do a bad Mae West impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then I, I have to admit that I really dislike her singing, but that's because I, the 1930s had a style of opera singing that was very shrilling, and the sound recording of the time didn't help. So every time she sang, I was like, please shut up, let me hear the Strauss waltzes, which are beautiful. But oh no! Sorry, I actually like I actually like that style of singing, but only in only I think because I love old Hollywood so much. So like I've heard it so much, and I like I make me think of Snow White, which I love. And uh, but uh, yeah, it is definitely it is definitely not a modern um, sound. Can we discuss how much uh, Hammerstein just like phoned in these lyrics that are what? insane? He wrote, he wrote like like pop love lyrics to like Strauss waltzes. It was like if you are mine, then I am yours. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> what do you think the words of this song? What are you, what are, what is this? Yeah. Insane. Also, since we're on the subject, I know we're supposed to talk about supporting actresses, but I, I've not seen a more repulsive leading man. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, he he totally turned me off, and uh, I, you know, I don't care how pleasant he was as an old man meeting his rivals later on. You know, being like, being uh, given a, a an award by the king, or whatever. I, I I loathed him, the yeah. dick from the beginning. I loathe that scene in biopics in general. At the end, when the old the great man is rewarded with something. It makes me think of a beautiful mind every yeah. time. I'm like, I can't, I can't. We've spent the whole movie worshiping this person's talent or whatever. I just, I don't need an award at the end of it. Um, but yeah, the Oscars uh, did, did like that movie. 
Best, I mean, the cinematography is very good. Do you ever, okay, so like, since we're all here and we all, you know, in theory, like, you know, 1930s movies or, or what have you, and then, you know, so there's a bunch that they play all the time on, on TCM or AMC or whatever, and, and then you find one you haven't seen, you're like, oh, I was so excited to do this. I was like, there's three of these I have never seen before or even heard of. That's so exciting. And then you watch them and you're like, okay, so there's a reason why <laughs> I've never seen or heard of these three movies. And that's because one is an insane jukebox musical about Johann Strauss for some reason. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, so I hate to do this, but we're at the end of our time, so we have to close with our recasting game, which we do every time. And this is just the idea of this is that different actors bring different colors to different roles. So I want to hear from you. You just switch one of the people, give them somebody else's part, and what do you think it? Why? Why would that be interesting to you? Who wants to go first? I'll go. I would like to put Milisha Korju's in the role of Strauss, just to to screw with Claudia. (laughs) Just to to make him even more angry. He may be better as Strauss. He probably (laughs) would be. It's a low bar, but yeah. Yeah. Wait, we we can switch any role, or should we switch? We usually just switch the actresses, but you can switch any role if you want. Oh, yeah, I like Stephen's answer, but I am going to go with my original plan, which was is going to make me unpopular, was just to put Spring Byington in Billy Burke's role, because like I said, I think they are similar flavors, but I do think that Spring Byington could have brought like the human connection that I was looking for uh, in that role. How about you? I, oh, sorry, go Claudia. I actually would like to do the opposite. I'd love to see Billy Burke take on You Can Take It With You. Hmm. Um, I didn't really speak about Byington's performance, but she's a very reliable character actress. I like her very much in things like presenting Lily Mars, for instance, with Judy Garland. Oh, I love that movie, yeah. Um, but I, I almost thought she underplayed the role in You Can Take It With You a little bit too much. She often got lost in scenes unless the camera was really focusing on her, like the adorable kitten uses a paperweight. Um, so I really would like to see Billy Burke cr- tackle a role that, despite all the family's eccentricities, is the, the straight man of the family, because mm-hmm. despite everybody being crazy, she is the one that's more down to earth. It would be interesting to see uh, an actress with the energy of Billy Burke trying to tone it down, but still um, be one with the eccentric surroundings that you can take it with you demands. She's very much one-woman show in Merrily We Live, so I'd like to see her play off other actors that are also being crazy and you can take it with you and see what she would come up with. I like that. How about you, Brittany? I think I'd like to... I'd like to see Blue Bondi in Merrily We Live, Billy Burke's character, just because I agree with you. Wild. I mean, I think she's... I love it range. She has so much range in all the things I've seen her, but I've never seen her play kooky. I've never seen her play eccentric. I want to see what she could do. Like, it's almost like Jeff Daniels in um, Dumb and Dumber. Like, do not take this role. You are a dramatic actor. Like, this is going to kill your career. I feel like if Blue Bondi really let her hair down, she could probably have brought what Joanna was looking for, the grounded connection to that character and still have been funny and eccentric and crazy. Um, but I don't know. I'm loving everybody else's suggestions too. If, 
if technology could do it and make them switch, I'll watch all of them. <laughs> I really would like to see the most dramatic of the characters go to the complete opposite side of the spectrum in these performances. And I, and my answer is basically the inverse of yours. So it's <laughs> suited because I would, I, I've only seen Billy Burke do this one type of thing. And I'm, I want to test her range. I want to throw her into something like the Beulah Bondi role and see how does that voice play in a dramatic <laughs> setting, you know? Fascinating. Have her play Jezebel. Would <laughs> <laughs> either make it great or destroy it completely. Um, yeah. can I can I say one like uh, fun fact that I learned about? You can't take it with you. A movie that I've seen in a bunch. Anne Miller was only 15 when she what? filmed that movie, and she's playing her married sister, right? I was like, wow. I mean, you know, she has a baby face in that, but I was like, 15. My God. And I sort of, like, respect her because she never stops moving in that movie. I mean, we talked about the power of stillness, but her just, like, pirouetting through that whole movie was just uh, really fun. So. I, I saw um, the Broadway uh, revival of You Can't oh, Take It With You yeah. a few years ago. Yeah. And, um, it was, uh, oh my God, why is the name escaping? Annalee Ashford. Oh, I love her. Perfect. Uh, That's a perfect role for her. Who, uh, who was in it? Who was, who, who was in it? Um, James Earl Jones played the, the dad. Yeah. And, uh, um. Who's the Russian, who's, uh, who is, uh, confidentially she thinks who played that? <laughs> oh, yeah, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not, I, I just remember it being really funny, but the, the interesting thing about it was that different roles, popped for me more than they did in the movie. Yeah. Like the roles that popped in the movie for me were not the ones that popped on stage, which I thought was interesting because it was basically, you know, the same thing. Cause the movie is basically like a play. Yeah. It was a play right. to start with. Right? Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, this was so much fun to talk about 1938 with all of you. I'm so sad we have to wrap up. Um, but uh, as we're going, uh, just tell where we can see you or read you next. Um, so thanks again to Brittany Young. You can see me next when Netflix's Blow decides to resume shooting. Um, no, guys, I'm just really at my parents' house quarantining. Hope everyone's safe oh. and having a good time. Um, have a great day, everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. It's, it was a delight to talk. To Thank you. you. This is great. Thank you. Um, and Stephen Weber. Um, uh, night, first of all, nice to meet all of you. Uh, so cool. And I don't want to go back to my, uh, otherwise boring goddamn day. This, I've been looking forward to this so long. Uh, you can see Stephen Weber, uh, probably if you just keep your TV on, uh, 24-7 and some crappy rerun will come on. And <laughs> I'm, I'll be, I'll be grateful for that. Uh, otherwise, I'm just, you know, just, just, I'll, I'll come to the opening of an envelope. <laughs> Great. And Joanna Robinson. Uh, you can find me on VanityFair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. I co-host the Little Gold Men podcast about award season. If you like uh, Oscars, I'm sure you've heard Katie Rich on the podcast. And, um, yeah, I'm around. Thanks for coming. And Claudio Alves. You can find my writing at the film experience, photogeny.be, and if you can read in Portuguese at Magazine HD. Costoso. That's all I know. <laughs> um thanks guys this is great um thank you and you know, oh you know what i didn't ask everyone if you had another thir- 1938 movie you wanted to recommend that we didn't watch 
Did any of you have a favorite from 1938 that didn't oh. wasn't nominated for supporting actress? Bringing up baby. Ah. The Adventures of Robin Hood. Oh yeah, that's a goodie too. Well, Holiday and Bringing Up Baby came out in 1938. That's crazy. Yeah, that was another one. That was another one for me. The like repeating, uh, you know, like two Jimmy Stewart movies, Spring Byington's like in Jezebel, and yeah. those, like, <laughs> yeah. smaller roles, stuff like that. Like just a smaller pool of performers and how prolific they were. You know? um, I'm noticing that a movie in 1938, probably ahead of its time, was with Edward G. Robinson called The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse. Mm. Okay. Another you porn movie. Yeah. Not sure that would be made today. <laughs> Can we okay. double feature that with the whatever the Hussy movie was? Hussy. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, like do you have fantasies about owning their own theater, their yes. own theater? Like I from a, when I was since I was a kid, like I've always wanted to do that and program it every week. I'd be like, oh yeah, that's a good. That'd be a great double feature. Amazing yeah. Dr. Bitterhouse and the, the what, Hussy? The gorgeous Hussy. The gorgeous <laughs> Hussy. Come on. That would be hilarious. I can see it on the marquee. I can oh. see it. Oh, <laughs> great. Bye. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.